So this morning we're going to be um, in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 27. It's a really short passage this week. It's just verses 27 through 31, which uh, I will read for us. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, not only for the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but for the disciples who are um, just like us in every way, who are real men struggling to understand, to comprehend this glorious God in their midst. We thank you, that Lord, that uh, you did not spare them or spare their feelings or spare their reputations, but that you demonstrated just how foolish and how fallen and how broken and how selfish they were. And we pray, Lord God, that as we look into that today, we would not point and laugh, though at times it is funny, but that we would thoroughly and completely see ourselves in them. You are a mysterious God. You are a God of all comfort. And, and that comfort, Lord, does not come in a comfortable way. And we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word and as we attempt to understand it, that you would transform our hearts and our minds, our marriages and our homes, our workplaces and our community. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Now, I think most of us have been there before. You're, you're at a nice dinner party, right? The wine is good. The food is good. The company is good. The songs that you're singing are good. You think, you know, what, what would make this better than an, a moonlight stroll? And everyone is pleased, and everyone is happy, and everyone is content. <laughs> and then there's this one guy in the group who just has to go and say something confusing, something that <laughs> throws the whole thing off. And, and what's fascinating about this story is here is this group of friends leaving from uh, Passover dinner, and, and the person who's with them, the person who can't keep their mouth shut and just enjoy the moon and the sunshine, or the moon on the on the pavements, in the glory of the city, is Jesus himself. Right? This, this is, this is um, exactly how our lives are. The, the disciples are content. The disciples are going about their merry business. The disciples think things couldn't get better. But they have forgotten who is in their midst. They have forgotten that Jesus has other plans. Jesus has other things on his mind. Jesus has things going on that are bigger than just the small group that are following him. They, they were troubled at dinner, and Jesus said very difficult things at dinner. Jesus is saying that one of them is a traitor. Jesus is saying that unless you drink my blood, right, you are not part of this new covenant that I'm making. And they think, okay, well, what, what, what Jesus needs is a walk, right? Jesus needs some fresh air. Jesus maybe has been just a little too under the pressure lately. It, things are starting to get to him a little bit. He's starting to crack a little bit. Let's just get him out and get him some fresh air. And here they are walking this beautiful night in Jerusalem, and Jesus says something 
that is so personal, right? This isn't the uh, religious leaders that he is throwing under the bus. This is not scribes that he's challenging. These are not rabbis that he is um, calling names and, and, and exposing as being fools and hypocrites. Jesus is turning to his friends, and he is calling them backstabbers. He's calling them cowards. He's calling them false friends. Now, why would Jesus treat his friends this way? Why would he talk to them this way? Now, why is it that the wounds of a friend are more faithful than the kisses of an enemy? And how often are we just like these disciples? How often are you going along, you merry business, right? How many times have you left a nice Christmas Eve service and you're thinking, man, that was, the songs were beautiful, the dinner earlier was beautiful, the presents tomorrow are going to be beautiful, and then right in the midst of all your glory and all the goodness, life happens, right? This happened to us. We had, we had a phenomenal Christmas Eve service, and, and the kids were at Trinity Church where the service is held, and the kids are running up and down the stairs of the balcony, and they're having a great time, and then Polly barfs all over the place. And you think, oh, man, that's embarrassing. And there's the deacons of Trinity, and they're like, oh, don't, don't, you know, I'm trying to help them. They're like, no, no, this is what we're here for, cleaning up barf. Okay. We think, yeah, you know, he, we ate at my aunt's house. You never really know about the food at my aunt's house. Maybe that was all it was. <laughs> Dean invites us over. We're like, okay, cool, this is nice. We'll go over and have some cocktails. It'll be, it'll be fun. We get to the door. Shirley opens the door, and then Theo barfs all over the doorstep. Right? This is what this, this walk, right? this moonlit walk, it reminds me of this. At the height of our revelry, God, for some reason, decides at that moment to strike us down. <laughs> I, will, I will not describe the next Christmas morning to you. The, the presents were open, but there were barf bowls there in our midst. And why? Why is, it, why is God this way? Why does he do it this way? Why, why can't they just have their revelry? I mean, after everything that these disciples have been through following him, how come they can't just have this, these few hours of quiet rest? Now, the group went out, but this time they're not returning to Bethany. Because of the lateness of the hour and because they wanted to remain near Jerusalem itself because the festival is going on, the, the plan is to, to camp out on the Mount of Olives. This was a very common thing. Back in those days, you could, if you were a traveler and a pilgrim, especially this time of the year, you could just find a place to lie down, and you could lie down and sleep. It's a lot like walking around downtown Seattle right now. <laughs> the walk took about 20 minutes, and it is during this pleasant evening stroll to your camping site that the conversation I'm about to relay to you took place. The denial by Peter is prophesied by Jesus and the universal flight of the disciples just as the betrayal had already been foretold. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. One of you is a traitor. However, it's not just about this one guy. Right? At, at dinner, they thought, well, is it me that is this traitor? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And, and Jesus didn't tell them. So I'm sure, right? Have you ever had this moment where you're convicted a little bit and you're like, oh, man, maybe I'm the problem. And then you don't really get a straight answer, and immediately you're like, no, it's not me. It's this, uh. And so they probably feel quite self-justified. And Jesus, who loves them and knows them, probably realizes they feel quite self-justified and in the clear. And so he wants to make sure 
They understand that they're all traitors. Now, interestingly, the flow of the narrative um, could be uninterrupted if the reader jumped from verse 26 to 32. Mark seems to have just sort of dropped this paragraph in here. If you go back and you look at it, verses 26 to 32, that just seems like narrative that just flows along naturally. But Mark, (laughs) Mark, no, no, no. Mark has other plans. Mark has other, um, he has other things he's trying to accomplish in his readers. And so he takes this little paragraph and he just drops it right in here. Mark inserts this exchange to set the tone of what is to come. Because what is to come is, a, is terrible. What's coming for Jesus is terrible. And, and Mark wants to set that up ahead of time. The disciples are going to deny scripture. They're going to contradict Jesus' word. Then, Jesus, when, then when Jesus is asking them to pray for him because he's, he's terrified about what's coming, they all fall asleep and they don't support him in his anguish. Then they flee at his arrest. Then one young man who is so interested in getting away literally runs away naked. Then the council betrays him to Pontius Pilate. Then Peter denies Jesus outright. And all of that is coming. And that is what Mark is setting up at this point. Jesus is pursuing his calling in obedience and faith, and yet he is surrounded by a bunch of blackguards and scoundrels. Weak and braggadocious men, all of them. Now, typically, typically when we talk about the company that Jesus keeps and how he hangs out with a bunch of um, losers and prostitutes and everything, generally we think of those specific stories where those people are mentioned. But the biggest group of losers that Jesus hung out with was the ones that were with him all the time. Right? These, these are men who, as, as the story is, why, why these men? You can see why Jesus spent an entire night in prayer trying to figure out who it was that was going to follow him. Because, I mean, I would struggle over these guys too. Say, you know, Dad, is this really the group you want to send into battle with me? And, and what we're going to see in the story is just how fallen and broken these men really are. It is going to get ugly. Ugly. But as we have heard in previous weeks, Jesus is still going to win. So Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 28. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, during Jesus' Passover meal with the disciples, on the eve of his death, he predicts that one of them will betray him. After the meal, on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus makes, uh, declares that all of his disciples will desert him. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The striking of the shepherd is no doubt a metaphor for the death of Jesus on the cross, and in the context, the sheep are a reference to the disciples. Besides the obvious implication that Jesus believes what is written in the Old Testament, the four in that sentence actually tells us a great deal. It introduces the quotation, suggesting that the events that are about to unfold in the life of Christ and his disciples are scripted by God. It is written, he says, because this is what's going to happen. So Jesus, again, recognizes in his own life the script that the Lord, his Lord, God the Father had written centuries earlier. He's always recognizing in his life the events that God uh, had written ahead of time. 
And this is fascinating. He's constantly interpreting the scriptures in regards to himself. Something that I'm, I'm sure through the disciples a great deal, because back then they were always debating about what it was actually about. What is Isaiah about? What, what is Mo, who is this greater prophet that Moses, that's going to come after Moses? And, and Jesus is, is constantly referring to portions of the Old Testament that they know and that they're less familiar with, and he's constantly talking about them in the context of himself. Because Zechariah is the book that he's, he's about to launch into here, types and foreshadowing from that book, and that is a book that wasn't typically considered to be messianic in the same way that a book like Isaiah was. Because it is written, it will happen, is what Jesus says. Nothing happens by chance. God is faithfully working out his redemptive purposes through obedience and disobedience. This truth should not be misinterpreted to mean that Peter and his fellow disciples are not responsible for their scattering, because Peter instinctively takes responsibility for his subsequent denials. What I don't want here is fatalism. Well, Peter had no choice, right? It was written of him, and then that's what he ends up doing. But as we've covered before, there is this mystery between what is foreknown by God, what is foretold by God, and our individual choices, right? I, and, and it could be comforting or not to know, if you walked into Baskin and Robbins now, and you tried 14 flavors, and you picked one because it tastes the best, I don't know if it would be comforting to know that before time began, God foreknew and determined that you would pick that ice cream. Now, much like last week, how does that work? <laughs> well, that is like so far above my pay grade. I can't tell you how that works. That's just what works, how it works. This is what, this is what happens. Right? You, 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 you labor and labor over a choice, and you make the choice, and it's your choice. And yet, God knew that it was going to happen because he ordained that it was going to happen. And so Peter doesn't you know, point fingers back at God and say, well, hey, you know, all I did was what was written of me. Like that Lumineer song, right? I, I read the script, the costume fit, so I did my bit, or whatever the line is. It's not how the world actually works. Peter understands that he, what, what happens to him is by his choice. Peter will need restoration, just like all of the disciples. Now, the prophecy of the disciples' um, fall is an explanation from Zechariah chapter 13, specifically verse 7. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, who, who ministered during the period following the return of the Jewish exiles. Remember, all the Jews were scattered throughout Babylon in the 6th century BC, and what happens is they slowly started to come back, and that's when Zechariah was doing his ministry. By the time Zechariah records his prophecy, the initial enthusiasm of the returning exiles has dissipated. Right? There they were in exile all those years, and they, all they want is to get back, and they start getting back, and man, Jerusalem needs a lot of work. And it didn't take long, and they were kind of like, man, it was sort of nice being exiles. Everything was built already. Much like Israel when they left Egypt thought, oh, you know, we had plenty of food back there, even though we were slaves. And so this is when Zechariah steps onto the scene, is when the people of God are starting to think maybe exile was a little bit better than freedom. According to Zechariah, however, the Lord Almighty promises that the temple will be rebuilt and that he will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. He will save his people and bring them back to live in Jerusalem, according to Zechariah chapter 8. Also, Zechariah prophesies that Jerusalem's enemies will be destroyed, but the Lord's people and their earthly rulers, however, are not without sin. This is very clear in Zechariah. 
right? The enemies of God will be destroyed. However, you people are kind of sad and pathetic. I mean, he is a prophet of Israel. I mean, what else do you expect? Zechariah uses the metaphor of a shepherd and a flock to make his point. Regardless, a humble and gentle, righteous shepherd king from the house of David will come to Jerusalem, bringing salvation, proclaiming peace to the nations, and cleansing the inhabitants of Jerusalem from sin and impurity. Now, quotations from these chapters in Zechariah's prophecy are fulfilled at many strategic points in Jesus' ministry, indicating that he is, at the heart of uh, at the heart of his ministry, a divine restoration of the promises of God. If you go back all through Matthew and Mark, there's all these moments that align with prophecies from Zechariah. Many of the Jews had, th- had believed these prophecies had already been fulfilled with the Maccabees, who were kings that had actually rebuilt the temple, who had Bronson, right, and then Herod. They thought that all these things had already come to, to pass, but they hadn't. Before the restoration that is promised in Zechariah, there will be a time of divine judgment, and only a remnant will be spared, as Jesus explained throughout the Olivet Discourse. So you can see how Zechariah and Mark line up, because in Zechariah they talk about the fact that there will be some a special group that will be taken out and will be spared from all the tragic things that are going to happen. There will be a time of judgment. And what was the Olivet Discourse about, that Jesus just got done giving to his disciples. It's all about how the temple will be destroyed, but God will spare a certain number. Because that's how we, right? There's always an ark. There's always one, at least one family to start over with. In this case, there will be many people that will be spared, and that was what the Olivet Discourse was about. This is evident from Jesus' quotation in our text, taken from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What is immediately noticeable is that Jesus amends Zechariah's prophecy. He actually changes the text to explicitly identify the Lord as the one who strikes the shepherd. He says, I will strike the shepherd. That's, he, he's changed the text there. He's indicating the fact that God himself is the one who's going to strike the shepherd. Now, why would he say that? If you're, if you're with him and you're hoping that he's going to restore the kingdom, you're hoping that he's going to destroy the enemies of God, why would Jesus be talking about God striking the shepherd? The shepherd is described by the Lord Almighty in Zechariah's prophecy as my shepherd, the man who was close to me. This is an obvious allusion to Jesus, the Son of God, it's going to be God the Father who strikes the Son, right? On the cross, there are nails in his flesh. They have, in fact, whipped him pretty severely. They have a crown of thorns on his head. But who is it that's really doing the striking? God. God the Father. It's his own son that he's allowing all of these things to happen with. And the final blow, the harshest blow, the really, really nasty blow, comes from God the Father himself. So when we are, you know, when the disciples are there, when we are there and we're looking up at the cross, I think that we all too often forget this fact that it is his father who's put him there. It's his father who's striking him. The striking, in turn, is an allusion to Jesus' death on the cross. The point, of course, is that when Jesus is struck at Calvary, it is God's doing. It is the Lord Almighty himself. He is the one at work against the Son. 
Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. As a consequence, the sheep will be scattered. In this Old Testament context, the scattering reflects the Lord's hand turned against the little ones in judgment according to Zechariah 13, 7. Who are the little ones? Israel. The sheep. The father is going to strike the son, strike the shepherd, and scatter the sheep. He is doing it. Now, for all of us, right? I I thoroughly agree with all the disciples. I thoroughly agree with all of the first century Israelites. What are you talking about? What do you mean, God, our loving father, God, our king, God, our Lord, God, our savior, God, our sovereign, is going to be the one who strikes us? Well... (laughs) How can I blame the Democrats if it's God who's doing the the judgment? I don't understand. You've made it very difficult. It's no longer my brother-in-law, right? You've you've taken away all of my finger pointing if you say it's you, God, because what am I going to do? Stand here and point a finger at God? Well. Now, in World War II, if you were living in London, there really were German planes dropping German bombs. But who was doing, who was behind it all? Who allowed the Nazis to run wild? Who is, who made Trump president in all of its funniness and its glory? Who is behind everything that happens to us? I think this is something that we really need to think about. That, that marriage problem that you're having, that spiritual oppression that you're experiencing, the the depression that you have, the the lies, the broken relationships. Who's behind all of that? Who created this world? Who created you? Who created your circumstances? Zechariah's prophecy does not end on a note of judgment. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. This prophecy has the whole land, of, the whole land of Israel in view. It is obvious that Zechariah's prophecy at this point is alluding to the tribulations accompanying the events of AD 70 as we have covered thoroughly in the Olivet Discourse. The survival of a remnant and their restoration as God's people is possibly in view in Jesus' statement in Mark 14, 28 that suggests that some kind of reversal is going to happen. This is what Jesus says. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He throws this little promise in, saying, God is going to strike me. You will all run away, but, but I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, in the midst of all of this confusion, as I've said, right, these are a bunch of friends walking to their campsite after dinner, and here Jesus is giving them really bad news, and in the midst of it, if you're not careful, you miss this promise. But I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, what's the disciples? Do they they grab onto the promise and say, oh, goody, we are all going to fall away, but don't worry, guys, he's going ahead of us. He's going ahead of us. He's going to go to Galilee ahead of us. I don't even know what that means. They totally ignore that part of what he says. 
completely ignore it. All, all they're focused on right, is what Jesus, Jesus is interpreting to them, the Old Testament scriptures, and, and, and making a judgment on them. And that's what they focus on. Not the promise that he makes in the midst of it. One commentator observes there is this gratifying symmetry going on here. In verse 27 and 28, it says, The striking of the shepherd results in the scattering of the flock, but Jesus' resurrection will result in their regathering. God strikes them, and they scatter. God regathers them. Now think about that. He is the one that, that brings affliction. He is the one that brings suffering. He is the one that strikes them, and he is the one that goes ahead of them to regather them. Now, is that right? We sign up for, for Christianity. You know, you know what? Before I get baptized, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you put the water on me, I just, want to, I just want to verify something. Because this is what I'm really, I'm getting involved with the church because there are two things I really want. I really want God to strike me and bring affliction and difficulty in my life. But I really want to make sure, right, what you're telling me is that in the end, he will go ahead of me, whatever that means, and regather me. He'll fix it. He'll strike me and he'll fix it. Right? Imagine if <laughs> I was on a giant, I was in a giant room at Mars Hill getting baptized. There's 4,000 people there. I just, I can't even imagine if I would have stopped the whole production to ask that question. But I never would have because I never would have thought of Christianity in that way at all. Right? Because he, the striking down is the striking down of the old self so that the new self can do nothing but prosper, right? I mean, we're, I mean, the disciples had to suffer a little bit there at the end, but that doesn't mean all disciples have to suffer, right? That's nonsense. The passage to which Jesus is referring thus speaks of a necessity of judgment and violence and desertion. I'm going to say that again. The necessity of judgment and violence and desertion that leads to redemption. If you want a crown, what comes first? A cross. You want God? Fine. Put yourself to death. Even as sheep are scattered in panic when their shepherd falls, so the death of Jesus will cause the disciples to desert him and will mark the loss of the center point of their communal fellowship. Without him, who are they? Right? None of them, right? Their power to heal, their power to preach, their power to perform miracles comes from him. So if he's no longer there, who are they? If he's gone, what's their mission? If he's gone, where's the center of the kingdom? But the raised victorious king of the cosmos, the Lord of life and death, will be the new rallying point. The new Israel is Jesus, and in him the people of God will live and move and have their being. That's what he is telling them, but that is not what they hear. Don't worry, I will be struck down and you will all scatter, but I will go ahead of you in Galilee. That's, they don't hear the whole story. But what kind, they're being told the gospel again. I'm going, God the Father says, I'm going to strike down the sun and all the sheep are going to scatter, but in him, he will go ahead of you. And he will be the new rallying point. But again, they don't hear it. They don't hear it at all. And the question is, how often, when you have your Bible in your hands, and you've got the convicting, (laughs) 
the conviction and the promise there side by side, how often do you hear, like, oh man, this is just like the gospel story again. Whoop! No, I mean, right? That, that's not usually what we do. We don't hear the word of God and be like, oh man, I'm really glad he gave me the bad news and the good news all together like that. Now, it was normal for pilgrims to camp on the Mount of Olives, as I've said, and so Judas would know the vicinity where Jesus would likely be. This is also very interesting. Judas knows exactly where to find Jesus. And if Jesus knows that Judas knows, why is it that he goes there? If I were running from the police, I would not go home. Because they'd be like, well, the first place we'll check is his home. Right? Oh, somebody sold me out. You know what I'm going to do is go to a safe house that I planned that nobody knows about. But how many times did Jesus have an opportunity to avoid what was coming? All he had, right? Oh, God, the Father, I'm, I mean, I, I, I was just camping outside. I, I mean, I just went to the south side of town instead of the north side of town. I'm sorry. Right? How, he could have still been obedient most of the way and avoided what was coming. And yet, no, it's almost like this is how Jesus lives his life. There is an X that marks a spot where I'm supposed to stand when the bad guys come to take me away, and I'm not going to be anywhere else. Now, when the bad comes in your life, do you feel like you're standing on X marks the spot and this is the only place for you? The same locale where Jesus had predicted the fall of the temple becomes the site of his betrayal, right? He's on the Mount of Olives telling them what's going to happen to the temple and all the great things he's going to do. And now he's back there and that's the same place he's going to be arrested. This spot where he predicted the fall of the temple becomes the site of his betrayal, a far cry from the perceived military victory predicted in Zechariah chapter 14. Or is it? Right? Zechariah 14 ends with this military victory. The people of God over the enemies of God. But in Mark's gospel, the road to triumph over the forces of darkness leads through the cross. And thus, ironically, the darker the picture becomes, the nearer Mark's narrative is to the dawn of victory, the rising of the sun and the ingathering of God's eternal people. This is yet another application. The, the more darkness comes in our life, it is our natural reaction to be like, well, now we're closer to victory. I can honestly tell you from my perspective, no, that's not how I respond. Right? It's much like what Joel was saying. It's like I... The, I've come, I feel like I'm getting nearer to the sun and I just feel the burning. And, and, and what I don't, right, I, I don't know the difference between all the impurities burning away and coming into the light perfectly. Right, what's that moment, how does, <laughs> you take a big chunk of rock out of the ground, you're going to burn away all the impurities so you get the precious gems. At what point in there does it realize it's a precious gem? It just feels like all the other nasty rocks. Jesus, the more pressure that's on him, the darker it gets, the uglier it gets, the more he knows, right? the closer he feels to victory. And that is not how we are. Now, the allusions, in Zechariah, that, the allusions to Zechariah may well be read by Mark and his audience in such a way that they provide a contrast to the interpretation of of the rumors circulating in Jewish revolutionary circles in the first century. That was a complicated sentence, I realize now, having read it out loud. But in Mark's day, right, 
70 AD hadn't happened yet. And there's all this talk about a revolution. There's all this talk about the real Messiah coming. And I'm sure at some point, given the fact that first the Jews and then the Romans were persecuting the Christians, I wonder how many of them thought maybe they made a mistake. And the one that they were following wasn't the Messiah. Maybe we got on the wrong train. And so what what was circulating then is all these rumors of war. Remember what he said? Rumors of wars. They would say the Lord is coming. And, and, and if you're following Jesus and it's costing you your life, it's costing you your personal property, you might wonder if maybe you boarded the wrong train. But what Mark is doing here as he's writing this account, as he's, he's equating Jesus with, this, with the book of Zechariah, and he's showing them that the way that Jesus' life lay, played out fulfilled the very scriptures that everybody else was talking about still being relevant, if that makes any sense. The Jews are like, no, look, if you look at Zechariah, this is happening, this is happening. This is Mark's rival interpretation of that. I think interpreting Zechariah at this time in messianic terms was a very popular thing to do. And Mark is showing that, again, it's, it's an apologetic work. He's saying, no, the real Messiah is, in fact, Jesus. But what is Jesus saying to them? What has he told them? Right? He's told them the gospel, but that's not what they've heard. What have they heard? Jesus predicts that the disciples will literally stumble or turn away. Jesus uses the same word to describe the seed sown on rocky soil in his parable of the sower. In that parable, which was the key to understanding all the other parables, if we recall, it's also crucial to understanding the gospel story itself. Remember, some of the seed goes on the ground. And what happens? Is there, right? The sun comes out, persecution comes out, and the word doesn't remain. It falls away. It stumbles. And he uses that same word in reference to them now. You are going to be like that seed where the outside heat is too much for you. And so you flee. That's what he's saying to them. You are that seed right now. Now, remember when I said that our lives are, you can have the snapshot view or the video view. right? And, and the snapshot view at this point is they fall away. Now, we've all known people like this, I think. People where the outside persecution comes and you think, oh, well, that guy fell away. And, and what we have to remember what Jesus is really saying about them. How often do we use that parable and we think, well, that's that. That guy's gone. See you later. We're going to go over here now and work on these folks that haven't gone anywhere. But he's saying, right, those who have stumbled and fallen away were the disciples themselves. Mark chapter 4, verse 17. And they, this is what he says in the parable. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Well, who's the word? Jesus. What is he interpreting to them? The word of God. Is persecution going to come? Uh, Yes. And what are they going to do? They're going to fall away. They're going to flee. They're going to run. Right? And this isn't that cousin that you didn't really like anyway, who falls away and you're like, well, good, jeez. Right? Or that guy in church you never really talked to anyway, and you're like, well, now I never have to talk to them. Right? I mean, think how often you write people off with this soils, right? Oh, well, you know, the word wasn't really in him, I guess. He's not talking about outliers. He's not talking about people on the fringe. He's talking about the group that he has been sleeping with and eating with and traveling with and working with the whole time. 
They are going to fall away. The persecution is going to come, and they're going to be the first ones to run. Snapshot versus the video. I think all too often in our fallen wisdom, it's all snapshot all the time. Snap judgments. Let me just follow you around with a Polaroid, and at the end of the day, I will write you off. Jesus has quoted and interpreted the Old Testament prophet, the very word of God, but this prophetic word of God offends the disciples. What he has said now has offended them. They're triggered. right? They need hankies and Dr. Seuss books and good candles, and they just need a safe space because Jesus is so mean. Jesus hints at a reversal of their fall because Jesus goes ahead of them. Jesus dies for them so that they can fill his command to die to themselves and follow him, but they are not listening because they are triggered. They're snowflakes. There's no other way around it. We think that is a new concept. It's not a new concept. They are so offended by what he said, they're not listening to him. In the present context, this word proago is translated, I will go before you, and means I will lead you as a shepherd leads his sheep, not I will precede you. Mark wanted to assure his readers and hears that Jesus regathered the scattered disciples, forgave them, and restored them. Because if you're listening to this story and you've heard, right, Peter has come by and he's preached at some point, and you think, well, right, you hear this story and you're like, well, how is it that we could trust that guy now? I, I heard the story. As soon as there was a little bit of pressure, Peter, you took off. But part of what, what, what Mark is doing here is, is he is associating the everyday Christian life of his readers with the great saints, the great saints. There is nothing particularly special about Peter, about his struggles that the common Christian also doesn't experience. He's reassuring Mark, the community that face persecution in which they also would be scattered and stumbled. Because there are some there in Rome who think, hey, I stood fast. My neighbor, when the persecution came, ran away. And Mark is essentially saying, yes, just like Peter. So why don't we calm down a little bit and be a little bit more forgiving, a little bit more compassionate, and a little bit more like Jesus. Because once someone fell away, it wasn't the end of the story. There's an emphasis in Mark 14, 27 on the offense that Jesus causes the disciples by his judgment on their loyalty and their fortitude. And this element in the prediction is what Peter seizes upon in his bold affirmation of absolute loyalty. To be offended at Jesus is the opposite of believing him. It is the opposite of delighting in him. It implies the desire to be disassociated from him because too close an association with Jesus invites the same treatment that he receives. See, this is one of those things. We think of Jesus now as the king of the universe. Everyone wants to be associated with that. The all-powerful, all-knowing God in heaven who can do whatever he wants, and everybody's going to bow a knee, everyone is going to praise him, and psychologically, I don't think we realize the effect that has on us. Who doesn't want to be associated with that guy? Well, now we look at Jesus here. Who wants to be associated with this guy? Not many. The ones who have been following him for three years don't even want to be associated with him. To take offense at him means disassociation. When you hear, right, how, how often, this just happened to us recently, a friend of ours sits down and says, okay, all right, let you, all right, let's talk about the Bible. Let's do it. Let's have a conversation about the Bible. And you're like, oh, great. Let me tell you the gospel. They're like, no, 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 no. 
Why is it that we should stone homosexuals? First question, why do they, they just know? They know exactly how to be so annoying and difficult at the same time. And my wife was asked this question, and there she is, and she's got to give the answer. Well, couldn't we talk about the gospel? No, I've got to talk about this. Because, and, and, and how tempting is it at that moment to disassociate from it? To play games with it. Well, you know, with a Oh look, our food's coming, let's eat. <laughs> but taking offense at Jesus is, is disassociating yourself from it. How often are we do we disassociate ourselves from him and his word because we take offense at it or because someone else has taken offense? Well, I want to be compassionate. That person's offended, so I'm going to be offended offended with them, and I'm going to try to start now making the text make sense. Peter is offended by what Jesus has said. And so now this is the source of, of the denial. This is the source of the disassociation. He doesn't like what Jesus has said. He doesn't like his interpretation of Zechariah, and so now what he wants is space. Does he realize that, though? Who does realize that's what he wants? Jesus understands that's what Peter wants. Peter doesn't. Mark 14, 29 through 30. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I am the humblest guy I know. See these other schlubs? They're all going to run away. Sorry, guys. But I won't run away, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this, very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Not John. Not Matthew. Not your brother. You. How do you think the other disciples felt? Well, how do you like that, Peter? Ha <laughs> The explosive protest of Peter indicates that he found Jesus' comments in verse 27 to be extremely offensive. Peter's remark, however, provokes an even darker rejoinder from Jesus, just as uh, was the case back in chapter 8, verse 33. Jesus offered another amen, saying, I'm sorry, hold on. Back in chapter 8, verse 33, Peter was offended by what Jesus said. He objects to what Jesus says, and then Jesus doubles down. Now, what kind of friend is that? Right? Have, I, I have... <laughs> Talk about being tested. You have a friend there, and you know what you're about to say. It's going to be painful. So you get yourself ready, and you say it, and they're offended. And then what you say the second time is even more offensive. <laughs> what do we think of that kind of friend? Right? I don't like to have, I like to have one because I'm supposed to. If I, I don't like to have too many of those, though, because that's depressing. But what do we need in our lives? Right? Oh, you thought the first time it was painful? How about this one? Now, it, it's really, right? We don't want even our spouse to be like this, let alone a friend. But this is the kind of friend Jesus is because there are things that he cares about more than feelings. Jesus is saying that Peter isn't going to just run away. He is going to audibly, with his mouth, testify to not knowing Jesus at all. He's going to do it three times, because in that culture, doing it three times means you really mean it. It is evident that Peter's protest, echoed by his fellow disciples, is not just a challenge to Jesus' prediction, but also a rejection of what is written in God's prophetic word. Think about that. 
Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about, and you've quoted from the Old Testament, and I reject what is written. Does G- Who has the authority to not only command them, but to tell them explicitly what the Word of God says? Jesus. And they are saying, I, I, I don't accept what you're saying, and I don't accept what is written. So think of what they're, think of the boldness in this moment. You do not have the authority to tell me this, and you don't know the word of God. They say to the word of God. Now, good thing we never do that, right? (laughs) Good thing we don't have an authority problem, right? When Paul starts to explain things in Timothy, this is another one we just talked about, the woman saved by childbearing. Is a verse in Timothy. The woman is saved by childbearing. Now, how many of you guys are offended or just even a little confused when you hear that? Please, everyone, yes, thank you. Thank you, Laura, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My son. <laughs> right? How often do you read that and you're like, well, you know, I don't... Timothy, how well do you really... Or he's writing to Timothy, it's Paul. How well does Paul really know the Old Testament? Have you ever been tempted to think that? You think, well, you know, maybe it was just the culture. He says crazy things. We take offense at God's word, and what we do is we deny it, we deny its authority, and we deny what is written. Right? How, how many people now totally write off the Old Testament as just archaic, like ancient nonsense from a culture that we can't even understand that has no bearing on it? Right? This is the, this is the modern world, for goodness sakes. We went to the moon. It is evident that Peter's protest, echoed by his fellow disciples, is not just a challenge to Jesus' prediction, but a rejection of what is written in the prophetic word of God. They are playing with live ammo here, my friends. This is not just, uh, I don't really feel like obeying. They are outright right rejecting Jesus. They've already ran away from him. All that's left is to physically do it. They've right Their, their lips are near him, but their hearts have already fled. Right Now the rest of their bodies just need to catch up with their hearts. Mark chapter 14, verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Right Now they're all going to get in on the action. Well, Peter's not the only one. Me too, Jesus. Forget the fact that just recently we were all sitting down. You said one of us was a traitor. And we all, one by one, said, is it I, is it I, is it I? Because we don't really know ourselves. But no, now, now, just a few hours later, we'll be like, no, emphatically, no, no, I will not run away. I know myself. I know what I am capable of. You don't know anything, Jesus. <laughs> if I must die, Peter says. Let's think about that for a moment. If I must die. What is this if business? He clearly has not been paying attention. Jesus said, <laughs> if you want to follow me, right, maybe die to yourself and take up your cross every other day, once a month. If I must die, I will die. <laughs> oh, you will die, my friend. Jesus has repeatedly stated that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going there to do one thing, die. He's been quite clear. 
right? He, I, I'm going there, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I've got one thing on the agenda, and on the agenda is death. He's like, well, you know, you, know, you don't really know, maybe, maybe. We might have to die. Peter is acting like death is a possibility. He is still thinking of an armed takeover where he might risk his life in fighting for his master, where death is a possibility but not necessarily a requirement. But in the war against sin and death and the devil, death is the only way to victory. That is what he has failed to understand. He doesn't get it yet. Peter has no clue how Jesus is going to enter into his reign as the messianic king, nor what is required to follow Jesus into that kingdom. Now, interestingly, we're told that all the disciples chimed in at this juncture. It's very important to Mark to make sure that we all understand everybody participated in this. Augustine put it this way, God knows in us even what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. For Peter did not know his weakness when he heard from the Lord that he would deny him three times. The disciples are a jumble of self-delusion and self-deception. They have outright rejected the word of God. They've rejected Jesus. All that's left is to actually physically run away. And here Peter is in his confidence. He is so confident. Jesus, I have big plans for what we're going to do. I am going to martyr myself for you if I need to, Jesus. I will save you, Jesus. And it sounds so noble, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound so holy and upright? And you're like, man, Peter's a good, he's going to die for Jesus. And he does not understand that what he needs is Jesus to die for him. We all want to do great things for God. We want to go out and we want to, right? Post-millennialism? Sign me up, baby. Let's take this world over. Okay. All you got to do is die to yourself and accept the fact that Jesus died on your behalf. You have to completely disappear. and, And in your place, you will live a life Focus on Jesus. So when people hear you, they hear Jesus. When they see you, they see Jesus. When they think of you, they think of Jesus. And your whole life is no longer about you. It's about Jesus. And everybody who's like, are you sure that's the plan? All right, all right, all right. How about this? How about we work out this deal? Okay, so on Sundays, I'll go and I'll be with the people of God. And I'll give that part of my life to Jesus. How about that? Oh, okay, all right, well, that's only one day. I understand, that's not much. How about, how about I give you 15 minutes every morning, we say grace at meals, and I put my kids in a Christian school, and then I go to church on Sunday. How about that? That seems like a good deal, right? Seems reasonable. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll become a pastor. Then my like, whole life will be about him, right? And then I'll just get these few hours at the end of the day where I can do whatever I want. How about that deal? Can you, can you take that deal? Everything we've learned up to this point, what does Jesus want? Some of you or all of you? I'm asking this question now. Does he want all of you or some of you? All. He wants it all. What is he willing to do to get it? Strike you. Right? (laughs) At your most glorious moment, in your revelry, he will strike you down. Why? Because there are still things in your life that are not his. He didn't say, you know, cut your arm off, like have your arm die, and I'll take that bit of you. He wants all of you. 
The widow came with two pennies. How much did she put in? She put all of it in. The woman came with the, the alabaster flask of nard. She breaks it open like a pirate, starts dumping all of it on Jesus. $46,000 worth. Did she hold anything back? Do the disciples think that they're, right, they're totally self-deluded? They are, com- they are completely unaware of what's really going on, what Jesus' plans are, what he has to do in order to fulfill the will of God, and what is really required of them. And, and part of the problem is that they are holding back. Now, is there more of you now under the submission of Jesus Christ than there was when you came up out of the water? Yes. Is there still some of you you're holding back? You flee from yourself, you deny yourself, you renounce yourself, or you flee from him and renounce him. There's no middle ground. There's no half in, half out. It's all or it's nothing. And that's it. It doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter if you're in here right now and you're a baby or you are nearing 80 years old. Does he command all of you? Does he have all of you? Or or are you holding something back? If you deny him and you deny his word, you're denying him outright. You can't have, right, Matthew and not Zechariah. You can't have Paul's epistles and not Peter's epistles. You can't have some of it. It's all of it or it's none of it. And what we need to do is be a people who are willing to listen to Jesus and not take offense When we open his word, when we sit in a sermon like this and we hear him and and we hear teachers and we hear brothers and sisters speaking into our lives, what we need to do is not take offense. We live in the age of taking offense. And, And I'm telling you right now, you know what we all need is a great deal of offense. I need it and you need it. I love you, baby. My wife needs it. My kids need it. Sorry, guys. Not sorry. What this community needs in here and out here, outside of this room, is a great deal of offense. Because Peter takes offense and he denies him. Peter runs away. Peter outrightly says, I don't have nothing to do with that. What happens later? Is he restored? Right? This is why I love the gospel. No other religion throws their founders under the bus like the gospel authors. Right? Think of Mark. Right? Mark is sitting there, and they're reading this out loud, and there's Peter in the front row. (laughs) That's me. Right? Who else (laughs) exposes their uh, authorities now, right? You turn to 1 Peter, and that's the word of God you're reading there. And what we're reading here is this self-righteous man who totally rejects Jesus, totally falls away. We're not talking about some outlier guy we never really wanted with us anyway. Are you all in? Is the word of God your authority? All of it. All of it. Or some of it. Are you all in or just some of you? It is time for us to get on our knees and to pray to God. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus Christ, and all of your mercy and your tenderness offend. Offend me. Offend my children. Offend my neighbor. 
Give me the strength and the love and the gentleness to offend all the time and then to restore, right? We're told to restore things, but how do you restore things that never get all churned up anyway? Because it's the ministry of reconciliation that we've been equipped with, and that only happens when there's bad news, when you're reconciling two parties. This is what God commands of us. This is what was going on in the life of the disciples. The plan hasn't changed. And so you're either in or you're out. And, 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 and that is what I want you to leave here with today. Are you in or are you out? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your tender word that cuts right to the heart of the issue. We thank you, Lord God, for your kindness, for your difficult word. For Indeed, the wound of friends is healing. The wound of friends is life, and you are our greatest friend. We know that you do things that are mysterious, that you do things that confound us, that offend us, and we pray, God, that you would continue to but that you would give us a heart that, that would receive it, a heart that would be open, a heart that would pour itself out, that we would deny and renounce ourselves and that we would pursue Christ and follow Christ and that we would live Christ. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here today, there would be less of us and more of him in everything we say and do, and amen.